whether it be probation, uh, social workers in the dependency system, family court evaluators in the family law system. You have all these people that are evaluating, and very few of them understand the other's uh, job or purpose, and very few of them get the other person's information, and very few of them uh, try to craft orders uh, that um, will increase the likelihood of uh, safety for all of these people. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. This is a special edition of Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This program is dedicated to the memory of Allison Marie Myrick. Here are your hosts, attorneys J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from uh, somewhat displaced San Francisco. And this is Bob Ambrogi uh, coming to you from Massachusetts, uh, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. I write a blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, this week we're thanking our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms, suntrust.com forward slash law, and Clio, which is a web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com. Craig, we're doing something a little bit different this week. We're dedicating this program uh, to the memory of a wonderful young woman, Allison Myrick. Uh, She was a smart, outspoken, compassionate, funny, beautiful, caring young woman. Uh, like so many 19-year-old women with her whole life ahead of her, a bright future, she had just started her second semester at Fitchburg State College here in Massachusetts, where she studied graphic design and journalism. Her father, Steve, tells us Allison won a journalism award for her work designing and editing the school yearbook, and she was involved in causes to help others. She enjoyed soccer, cup of noodles, the color purple, and the thrill of a roller coaster ride. Well, unfortunately, on January 23rd, Allison was killed. She was stabbed to death in Shirley, Massachusetts, a rather unthinkable murder. Her former boyfriend, that 19-year-old Robert Gula, is charged in the killing. The two began dating in September, but something went terribly wrong. Recently, Allison had obtained an emergency restraining order to keep Gula away from her, and she had filed for another TRO, according to authorities. Prosecutors claim that Gula stabbed Myrick with a knife and then used it on himself and shot himself in the head with a rifle-style air gun. He survived. Uh, In a statement given to us by Allison's mother, Susan, uh, she wrote, uh, and I'm quoting here, Please take this as an example that this can happen to anyone. If you are in a situation that is in any way abusive, no matter how small it may seem at first, please ask for help. You cannot fix this yourself. And no matter how many times your abuser says that he has changed, you cannot trust that. Bob Allison's father, Steve, who is a friend and colleague of the Legal Talk Network co-founders, wanted us to read this from him. Quote, many people who share our ache for Allie have asked me to if there is anything they can do. This is what I tell them. If there is a young woman in your life, a daughter, a niece, a sister, give them a hug and give them another hug for me and sit down and have a talk about dating violence and abusive relationships. 
It's the best thing you can do for us. So many of our friends have done this and asked their friends to do this that I feel certain we have saved a life or two. Some kid somewhere who had that talk in the past few weeks is going to recognize the warning signs in time to get away before it's too late. That is a great comfort to us. Unquote. Well, today, Bob, on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're making a call to action. We're going to re-examine current laws used to protect victims in abusive relationships, look at how the legal systems, lawyers, legislators, judges, and others can better protect our citizens and how we as a community can prevent tragedies like what happened to Allison. To help us do that today are our two guests. Joining us first today is Attorney Kazarosian from the Kazarosian Law Offices in Andover, Massachusetts. Uh, Marsha has been trying cases since 1983, developing a wide range of expertise in the areas of discrimination, harassment, family law, and criminal, as well as civil litigation. She's an experienced mediator and conciliator in the Superior and District Courts of Massachusetts. Uh, Marsha has advocated for many women in abusive relationships in cases both in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. She also has her own program here on LTN called Power of Attorney, and her firm's website is at uh, kazerosian.com. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Marcia. Thank you, Bob. I, it's a pleasure to be here, even though it's under very unfortunate circumstances. And Bob, our next guest is the Honorable Eugene M. Hyman from the Santa Clara County Superior Court here in California. Judge Hyman is recognized as an international expert in preventing juvenile, family, and domestic violence. In 1999, he founded the Santa Clara County Juvenile Delinquency, Domestic Violence, and Family Violence Court, the first of its kind in the nation to holistically address these issues. In 2008, the United Nations honored Judge Hyman in the court with its Public Service Award. He has taught 21 years as an adjunct professor at Santa Clara University. You can learn more about Judge Hyman's innovative work at judgehyman.com. It's H-Y-M-A-N. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Judge Hyman. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you this morning. Well, Judge, maybe we should start with you and, and ask about, uh, you know, not the particulars of this case, but I guess the question that comes to mind is, is the legal system really equipped to handle these cases? Uh, what should it be doing? Well, I, I believe that the legal system is equipped if it, if it, in fact, is aware of the circumstances and if it takes appropriate action. But in order for all that to occur, there has to first be uh, knowledge, there has to be training on the part of the judge and on the part of the lawyers uh, before the court, whether it be in the criminal court, family, delinquency, uh, or dependency courts. Um, secondly, there needs to be um, information uh, needs to be available. The judge needs to know, as do the lawyers, what other systems this uh, family uh, might be uh, in, what other divisions of the court that they're in, so that they have uh, other orders that are made by other courts, as well as the information that those uh, other courts had when they made their respective orders. Uh, because information is power is the old, uh, the old term, and it's true. If you're making decisions not knowing what, that there are other cases and that other judges have had other um, other information provided to them, then you're you're not making the best informed uh, decision. And when you make when you do not make the best informed decision, there's a uh, an increased likelihood of conflicting orders, of um, 
not uh, being able to reinforce uh, conditions of probation or orders of the family uh, or uh, dependency court. And that all favors um, uh, a increased uh, potential for violence and, and for safety issues with respect to those that have come to the, uh, to the court before the court to receive that attention. Well, Marcia, what? How does this happen? I mean, what, what are the set of circumstances that exist that create ultimately the situation that Allison found herself in? Well, I think from my understanding about what happened was that uh, she was in a relationship that was abusive from the outside looking in, um, and I think possibly recognized it, uh, but decided against pursuing what she had available to her as far as uh, a domestic violence uh, protective order, which is in Massachusetts, a a restraining order under Mass General Laws 209A. And this happens quite a bit where I think sometimes the victim believes that by taking that step, they're exacerbating the situation and are, are going to anger the person even more and put themselves in even more jeopardy, which is very unfortunate. Just as the judge had said, education is extremely important, um, not only for the judges, the courts and the police officers, but for the victims um, who are potentially out there to understand why this is a protection to them, how they can use it, and what other opportunities or protections are available to them, such as uh, pursuing an action, a criminal action, uh, in Massachusetts, the restraining order and is probably the same anywhere is a civil action and criminal uh, charges don't arise until it's been violated. But at the same time, many times the courts will issue assault and battery charges, stalking charges, which is criminal and gives a little bit of an extra oomph to the thing. Um, they're in the uh, criminal court. So what's happened here is extremely tragic Um and has, it happens uh, more often than people would think it happens. My understanding in this case was that uh, Allison uh, did have a restraining order. And in, in fact, had just uh, obtained the restraining order four days before the killing. And uh, given our systems, uh, our system of due process, given that, that uh, our system uh, can only operate uh, Make you know it, it must be confined to the evidence and and must give uh, people an opportunity to be heard. Uh, is there more that the courts could be doing at this TRO stage uh, early in a case before uh, before a judge really knows perhaps fully what's going on or or at least before the record has been fully developed in a case? Uh, judge Hyman, let me ask you that. Yeah, I I believe uh, that yes, a lot more can happen, and um, you know, a lot of people ask uh, me at um, various um, presentations: Are temporary restraining orders, emergency protection orders, uh, criminal protection orders, are they, are they worth it? Seems like a lot of work um, sometimes to be able to obtain these various orders, and, and what exactly do they get you? And, and my response is, they're effective only if. Certain other things happen. Number one, when the judge issues one, assuming that the restrained persons before the court as compared to a default situation where they don't show up, the judge has to advise the person, even though it's going to be in the order, I, I believe you have to go over it with them so that they understand what they can and can't do. That there's no such thing as accidentally showing up, because if you accidentally um, 
are at the same location as the victim, then you have to leave. Allegedly, if the victim calls you, you have to hang up. If the victim shows up at your house, you have to close your door. Those kinds of things. Two, you need to explain to the... Um, uh, to the protected person, um, what that person needs to do in order to have this order enforced, and the court takes its order seriously. Uh, third, the defendant needs to understand that if there is a violation, that things will be dealt with very quickly. That they will have due process rights, of course, uh, but that you know the court has a docket uh, rocket or a rocket docket rather, uh, so that these things are sped up rather than languishing for months. Um, there needs to be consequences if, in fact, there is a violation of the order, and it needs to be immediate. You need to have your local uh, community needs to be behind in the sense that uh, the police are going to take action if they have probable cause to believe that something happened and an arrest is made. And the court needs to impose a, a reasonable consequence given the circumstances of the violation. Obviously, if the person called or texted or something like that, that's one thing. If they actually showed up, that's something else. And uh, the defendant needs to understand that the court takes its orders seriously and, and that uh, if, in fact, a violation has been proved, there will be consequences, that they will be imposed immediately, and that um, the court hopes that there won't be a violation. The court isn't trying to set the defendant up for a violation. Uh, this can all be done politely, but it also can be done with a, an error that uh, this is serious and that if you stay away, it's going to uh, increase the likelihood that your problems are going to be minimized. If you violate the order and if it's proven, then the consequences are going to be commensurate with what occurred. Marsha, what do parents or friends or family members that see this kind of abuse developing or hear about it, what can they do apart from what the court system has available in it? Well, I think that's where education and support come in. Um, obviously, a lot of people... Um, feel that they're seeing this happen, but you can't do anything for the victim. The best you can do is to support them and encourage them to protect themselves by availing themselves of the safeties of the system. Uh, but you can't force anyone into doing it. And it's very difficult thing to um, try to convince someone that they are not able to control a situation when they believe that they can. Um, there are, you know, part of this, I think, starts from when children are very young, whether it's the abuser or the abused person, we seem to be a little bit um, jaded towards violence and loud yelling and skirmishes like that in the family situation. So sometimes some of these people think that that's normal. I'm not, I'm not talking about this case in particular. I'm just saying in general, people have a different idea of what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And if they're not educated as to what is absolutely not appropriate, then you're sunk because you can't convince them otherwise. And I think one of the other things um, that's a, di a difficult problem is that there has to be some consistency between the judges and the courts. And in Massachusetts, you, you can get a restraining order out of the um uh, probate and family court, you can get a restraining order out of the district court, but certain judges in certain courts will differ as to what their standards are. Uh, it's, it's subjective to some extent, and I think that causes some problems as well. What kind of uh, intervention is allowed to occur for family members? If family members or parent or a brother or sister see their 
someone in this situation, are they allowed to intervene? And to what extent can they? Well, in in Massachusetts, if if you have an, a, a minor child, you can go in as next friend of that minor child and assert their rights and protect them. But absent that, I mean, I've heard of people going in on interventions for alcoholics and there's nothing legal. I mean, I don't know what the legality or illegality of it is. It's really just a practical wake-up call to try to shake the person and have them understand what they're doing is dangerous to themselves and that no matter how much they believe that this situation may be hopeless or there's nothing they can do about it, that is simply not true. There are a lot of things that can be done. And when, and when you hear somebody say, well, it's just worth the paper that it's written on, in one respect, I suppose that's true. But in the other respect, if you don't take advantage and use that paper to the fullest possible extent. If they call you, you report it as a violation. Some people sit back and say, well, he just called me. You know, what's the big deal? Or he sent me flowers. What's the big deal? That is not right. That's a violation. Then the criminal action comes in. They're going to be arrested. They're going to be put in jail. They're going to be bailed. And it's going to be a much higher scrutiny. But people just don't understand what is appropriate, what is a violation, or they just think that they're being, they're exaggerating the situation, or maybe it's something they did. And it's a really um, dangerous mindset. May, may I comment? Please. Certainly. Okay. Um, I agree with everything uh, that counsel has said. Uh, the only thing that I would add is that um, as a judge, sit, when I sit in a criminal court, I'm obviously uh, very concerned that I somehow don't uh, communicate to a victim that somehow she's at fault, nor do I want to communicate to a victim in some way that I'm re-victimizing her by lecturing to her or somehow telling her what she has to do. Because in a criminal setting, I have no jurisdiction to tell uh, a victim. Uh, what to do. But as I said in my initial comments, if the courts are coordinated, while I I would be reluctant or I would carefully uh, have a victim do something, in the family court, it's appropriate to issue an order whereby a, a victim is required to attend uh, some kind of a program offered by an advocacy group so that the victim understands a little bit better the dynamics of um, of domestic violence and the power and control wheel and things like that. In the criminal court, one of the things that I would encourage a victim to do is to contact the uh, National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 to find out about local resources within our community and encourage them to call all the resources, which they can do anonymously. And my experience has been that they should receive consistent information from all the resources and that hopefully that will empower a a victim uh, to be able to take an appropriate cause of action. Uh, The other thing that's important, uh, if uh, they're in the civil court for restraining order and they wish to drop it, uh, that the judge um, say the uh, say the right things in terms of, uh, I understand and I hope that you'll always feel free to come back and uh, you need to do what you think is appropriate and uh, I'm not upset that you're withdrawing your application at this particular point in time. So while I certainly agree that in the criminal court, uh, the judge is limited uh, in terms of what the judge can do with respect to a victim, I think if there's this coordination with abuse and neglect, uh, 
dependency court as well as with the family court, that there are things that uh, that can be done uh, to hopefully motivate uh, a, a victim in terms of at least learning a little bit about the situation. Leaving is incremental. Uh, getting healthy is incremental. And we need to be consistent in our on-message in terms of what we say to people and um, hope that if they uh, didn't hear the message today, that they might hear it tomorrow, next week, next month, or, or whatever. Whatever. We can't give up, and we can't be negative, and we have to be empowering. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of judges, uh, a lot of uh, prosecutors, and I suggest that even uh, criminal defense attorneys are also part of the solution. They don't necessarily view themselves that way, uh, but we're a community, and as a community, we need to help those that need the help, and these people clearly need the help. One of the tragic aspects of this case, of course, was that was that Allison was so young, 19 years old. And, you know, Judge Hyman, from uh, having looked at your website, that, that you've written uh, several articles on, on teen domestic violence. Uh, how are those cases different, if at all, from, from cases of adult domestic violence? And, and how should the system's response to those cases be different, if at all? Well, they are they are different in some ways good in some ways not so good um, fortunately as a general rule the violence that's perpetrated on um, juveniles by other juveniles is usually not as severe the number of um, victims that need uh, hospital treatment and the number of homicides that have occurred uh, while the victim is a, is a teenager is proportionately much less than that of the adult. The mechanisms of domestic violence, the power and control is exactly the same, but at that age, the violence, fortunately, for the most part, is not as severe. But the mechanisms are exactly the same and work as effectively. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing depends upon the individual family, and that is is that they a teen victim of domestic violence, um, you know, at least has one parent or guardian that's involved, maybe not a, a father and a mother, but usually uh, one, and usually uh, other family members are uh, involved uh, with, the, um, with the minor. And if they get it, if they're supportive, that's a great thing. If um, they're not, then uh, that isn't a good thing. If the minor victim is in a home where there's domestic violence, then that adds to the problems in terms of trying to keep that person safe. Safe not only from uh, the perpetrator, but safe from their own uh, family members who might be uh, visiting violence upon them. Uh, there's also uh, the school problem in the sense that some schools are very knowledgeable about domestic violence, understand what it is, and try and make the school environment as safe as is reasonably uh, possible. Uh, those schools understand protection orders, restraining orders, and how to effectively um, shield uh, victims from their perpetrators in a school uh, setting. They also have programs, counseling programs, and other kinds of programs to assist with respect to that kind of a situation. Uh, 50%, approximately 50% of the cases that we see in Santa Clara County, the um, the parties, the batterer, and uh, his uh, juvenile victim have a child together, which creates uh, a whole additional uh, level of problems because the um, the father uh, wants to see the child, and uh, that uh, presents the possibility for additional avenues for him to be able to uh, use that visitation for power and control purposes, put, putting that uh, um, 
child at great risk. Uh, but it's um, in every level that we're dealing with, you're bringing in more people, more evaluators, and more opportunities to collaborate and more opportunities for the various systems, not only the judges, but the various people that are involved as evaluators, whether it be probation, uh, social workers in the dependency system, family court evaluators in the family law system. You have all these people that are evaluating, and very few of them understand the other's uh, job or purpose, and very few of them get the other person's information, and very few of them uh, try to craft orders uh, that um, will increase the likelihood of uh, safety for all of these people. Well, we need to take a short break in our program. When we return, we'll talk more about protecting victims legally from domestic abuse with Attorney Marcia Kazrosian and Judge Eugene Hyman. You're listening to a special edition of Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. If you are in an abusive relationship or know someone who is, get help. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. Or visit Break the Cycle, a national group which educates teens about dating violence. BreakTheCycle.com. Or visit the Mass Coalition Against Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence at janedoe.org. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Coming soon, you can listen to Legal Talk Network shows and get CLE credit at West Legal Ed Center. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. We're talking about uh, prevention uh, of domestic violence with our guest, Attorney Marsha Kazarosian, uh, a lawyer in Massachusetts who's uh, been an advocate for many women in abusive relationships, and with Judge Eugene Hyman, uh, Santa Clara County Superior Court in California, who's uh, an internationally recognized expert in preventing uh, juvenile family and domestic violence. And Marsha, I want to ask you, uh, as I say, you've, you've been an advocate for many women in these cases. Uh, for lawyers who are less experienced, perhaps, in, in these cases, uh, what do you advise them when somebody comes into their office uh, talking about this? How should they approach these cases? Well, I, th- I can actually talk about it from both sides, because not only have I advocated and represented women 
seeking uh, restraining orders, but I've also represented people being accused of um, abusing someone. And it's, it's really a difficult situation. When someone comes in, whether it's a man or a woman, and they feel that they are abused, you need to really sit down and find out exactly what's been going on in their lives, what their relationship has been, what are the things that have been said, what are the things that they are doing. And many times, you can <laughs> experience, you can sit down and find out whether this person really understands the level of um, abuse that's being um, directed at them. And many people really don't. I, I, it's difficult for a lawyer uh, because generally these cases go hand in hand with a subsequent divorce case or a paternity case. And there's always that fear that you're going to be accused of using a restraining order to get a leg up on a custody battle, which is unfortunate. Um, and it does happen, uh, but you have to walk that fine line. And when people don't understand what's appropriate, you have to explain it to them. So I, I sit down and I explain to them that you're not, you do not have to take someone screaming and yelling and swearing and placing you in fear because they'll say to me, he gets so angry, he punches the wall, but he's never actually hit me. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't go in and get protection if you believe or if you're in fear reasonably that that anger may be directed at you and, the, and he could hit you because if he's punched the wall next to your head, the next thing coming up is that he could punch your head and you don't want to wait for that to happen. And some people aren't going to say, I'm going to punch you in the head. It's just going to happen. Um, you have, we have situations where people have sent multiple text messages. I mean, I, I have a case where um, a person sent 37 to 40 text messages in a divorce situation um, because he had just found out that his wife was um, not being faithful. So he's very angry. You know, the number of whether it's a threat or not contained in those messages, the number of messages will put fear in somebody. It's it, you, you getting 37 text messages from someone within three hours. And that's a concern. That's that's a threat. And that's a situation where someone perhaps should go down and ask for a restraining order. But people think that they have to have been first hit or someone has to say, I'm going to blow your head off before they have a right to do it. And that's not so. Um, there are a lot of different things that constitute abuse. And it's your fear. If you are reasonably in fear and you're the only person that knows the the abuser, you know them better than the judge is going to know them, you know them better than the lawyer is going to know them. What you have to do is try to get that person to sit down and sift out what's reality, what's what's practical, what's reasonable, and what's just something that they wish would happen, which is, I think I can change this guy. I think he said to me a hundred times he's never going to do it again, but then he does it again. That's a, that's a red, red, red flag. And um, when I was listening to the judge speak, I'm thinking about you know, we have this national situation with with um, pop stars who was what's Chris Brown and Rihanna. And they had a situation where she was beaten up and he admits doing it. But now you've got people in camps. These teens take these camps. He even though he has admitted doing that, he's made this uh, campaign of trying to show prove he's never going to do it again. He writes songs about it. He's become sort of a little hero, which is really, really wrong. These are the kinds of messages that kids are getting. We don't even realize they're getting them, but they're getting them. So if you say to someone, 
They can tell you a hundred times they're going to change. They're going to tell you a hundred times they won't do it again. That doesn't mean that what they're saying is true. Judge Hyman, have you seen the program that you started, your Holistic Family Law and Domestic Abuse Program? Has that gone further than California? It has, but um, not uh, not to a great extent. I know there's something in um, in Austin, Texas. Uh, it's been investigated in a couple of other places. I'm only aware of um, the fact that there's something in Seattle, Washington, as well as San Francisco, California. But it is something that is not caught on. And I think the reason for that is that the teen dating violence is taken even less seriously than adult domestic violence. And also because I believe that uh, women are not valued uh, in our country and in our world. And until such time as uh, women are truly valued, um, we aren't going to be seeing the interventions to the extent that they're necessary in order to protect people. We're just about at the end of our time for this program, uh, but before we go, we would like to give each of you an opportunity to share your your concluding thoughts on this topic, um, and also if you care to uh, point our listeners to ways either that they can follow up with you or, or uh, find out more about your work, uh, we invite you to do that as well. So, uh, Judge, let's, let's start with you. All right. Thank you. Um, I guess I would really ask everyone to uh, memorize the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, and that if they see a person uh, that uh, obviously is um, in an abusive relationship, that they encourage that person to call that line and to get the local resources, and to also encourage that person that uh, they deserve uh, better than what is happening to them. Uh, to support them and uh, not criticize them. Uh, we're all responsible to uh, to help uh, others that are less fortunate than ourselves. And uh, you never know when this kind of an intervention is going to make a difference. Every victim that I've spoken to that has left an abusive relationship told me that uh, the reason that they uh, left or were able to leave was because numerous people had given them numbers. Numerous people told them that they were worth it and that they should not uh, remain in an unsafe and dangerous situation for themselves and for their children. I should say your your website, judgehyman.com, uh, you've got an uh, excellent collection of, of articles and, and links to other resources and, and whatnot there. So I uh, encourage listeners to check that out at uh, judgehyman.com. Uh, Marcia, your concluding thoughts? Oh, I think that people need to realize that when someone says it's not worth the paper it's written on, that's absolutely not true. Um, no, you can't ever let anyone think that all is lost and there's nothing they can do to protect themselves. I think, though, that I would encourage and hope that people work harder to get the police and the enforcement officers to enforce these um, these orders and to act when they're violated immediately and to not to try to make their own decisions about whether they should or shouldn't and to educate these people to recognize when they may not be able to control a situation, no matter how much they love someone or think they love someone, you've got to love yourself and protect yourself and taking action to protect yourself does not necessarily mean you don't love that person, but you need to protect yourself. You can only control what you can do and not what someone else can do. And that's sometimes a life or death decision. And I would hope that everyone would opt for life and do whatever they could possibly do and take whatever steps to protect themselves. 
And listeners can follow up with you through your website, I assume, Kazarogian.com. Yes. Great. Well, Bob, we should thank both of our guests for being with us. And uh, we'd also like to mention a few other resources for women in abusive relationships. There's Jane Doe, Inc. at janedoe.org and also womenslaw.org with help and information in any state in the United States. And uh, there's also the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-SAFE. And a very special thanks to our guests for being with us today. Uh, Allison Myrick's family has chosen one other organization, Break the Cycle, a national group which educates teens about dating, violence, and abusive relationships, and also advocates for progressive laws and policy changes uh, that group is currently working to improve laws in Massachusetts, uh, and you can find out more about that group or donate uh, to support it at uh, breakthecycle.org. Uh, and specifically, if you want to donate, you'd go to breakthecycle.org slash donate. And, uh, of course, uh, a reminder to our listeners that, that this program uh, and an archive of all of our programs is available at the LegalTalkNetwork.com and also on iTunes in the podcast library there. And we will be back next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thank you for both of our guests, Marsha Kazrosian and Gene Hyman, a judge out in the Santa Clara County Superior Court in California, for participating today. Thank you to you both. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. You've been listening to a special edition of Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network with your hosts, attorneys J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Today's program is dedicated to the memory of Allison Marie Myrick. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.